scriptures say in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Lord God, You are sufficient for all our needs. But even more than that, Lord, You blow our minds with Your power and Your strength. And Lord, our songs this morning are just human attempts to lift our voices up, to lift our praise up to such a great God and King. It's only by your mercy that you tell us in your word that you hear the praises of your people. So we thank you, Lord, for coming down to us, being Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that we live by this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. passage of scripture that we just read, coming from the pen of the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, conveys to us something I think is so profound and so difficult to wrap our heads around, yet we have to trust that the Holy Spirit gave us these words for a reason. He wanted us to do what we could, even with the power of the Holy Spirit, to comprehend the truth that has been laid down before us. John uses a word that we can relate to because he says, in the beginning, it sounds just like the start of our scriptures in Genesis 1, but John doesn't necessarily mean in the beginning, like the moment that you and I can comprehend, the the, the moment that you and I can relate to. We We relate to our birthday, we relate to the birthdays of our children and our family. We know when our country was founded, or at least we should, students, right, should know when your country was founded. We know when things begin. We're finite beings. We had a beginning. So when John says in the beginning, it's, it's, it's an emphasis of the furthest you can think of in the beginning, where you can go in your mind, with your finite mind, go even further and Jesus was there. And then go further than that and Jesus was there. He was in the beginning. And John sharing a word or the word, the word logos, to Various audiences had significant meaning to them. If, if he says uh, logos, which is a Greek word, if he says it to the Greek audience, they interpret everything through a rational mind. What we can put our minds around, what logic we can apply to various things. And so what John is saying is that as much as you can reason in your mind, the arrival of the word is beyond even what you can reason, what rationale you can come up with. To the Jewish audience, they want to see also the Lord coming in his, in his personhood, and, and, and he's coming locally to a people, right? He's coming to the Jews, his own people. And the arrival of God as the person has come. But even more than just what you can contain, Jewish people, in your area, God is coming for all. And he's greater and mightier than all. All things came into being by him. And so we go, okay, I get what you're saying, John. Everything we can imagine has come into being by Jesus Christ. And even then, we still can't get it. We just acknowledge it. So he says, I'm going to press the point even further. What you're thinking came into being did not come into being without his his presence, without his word. 
So everything that has come into being has come into being by the word. Capital W. And in him was life, as John records for us. And this life was the light of men. What I hope will happen this morning is you observe this passage and you let just kind of the majesty and the authority of this passage wash over you a bit. I don't know what your year has been like. I don't know what year you're anticipating having in 2015. But I want this, the authority and the power and the majesty of this passage just kind of wash you clean a little bit. And I hope to help you out in that process. Because it's one thing just to say that, oh, I'm going to bask in the glow of that passage. But, but really, you've got to apply it somehow. What does that really mean? The stage that is being set in these verses is truly greater than anything we can wrap our minds around. But somehow it's important for us to try. Under the, <clears throat> under the guidance and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are able to comprehend some of this or else it wouldn't have been recorded for us. So the fact that it's here means it's somewhat accessible to us. And if we start to, this will be my, my thesis for the day, if you will, is that if you start to relate or try to comprehend or at least engage with the greatness of God, His majesty, His authority, the, the bigness of God, the way you view what's coming in this, in this year, what you want to set out to do. And, and I know, you know, for most of us, we look at January 1 as a reset. We kind of want to wash the last year off or there's some things that went well or maybe you had such a great 2014, you don't want it to end and you're not sure how it can get any better. If, I, if that's you, I want to meet you because you're like a diamond in the rough. But the reality, and some of you, I know how you are about New Year's resolutions. You're like, I don't make New Year's resolutions. You don't write it down on a list, but in your mind, you're thinking, I got to do this differently next year. It's natural for us to look at beginnings and the calendar is so helpful for us being able to kind of block off what didn't work well or the things that we want to do better or differently. So my challenge to you is as you encounter the greatness of God, what you even want to put on your list for 2015 should change. We're small people. I'm not just saying because I am small. Last name. It's not my notes. I shouldn't have said it. Thanks, Pastor Bill. Appreciate it. So, my biggest fan. We are small, tiny people compared to the greatness of God. And the things that we want to put on our list for 2015 are naturally going to be small, tiny things. Does God have more in store for us than that? Just after this passage is given to us, the Apostle John also introduces us to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, is actually referred to by Jesus as the greatest man to ever walk this earth. Which is quite a statement, kind of a ringing endorsement if you're listening to the King of Kings. What's amazing about John is that his purpose was singular. You could even tell from the early accounts of his, his time in his mother's womb. It was just, you know, the purpose put on John's life was to announce the arrival of the Messiah. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I envy the singularity of John's purpose. He woke up every morning and said, well, back down to the town square or down by the riverside or something to announce you've got to repent of your sins because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the more John did this, the more his popularity grew and the more the throngs came because obviously they're responding to his message. But you know what we do as people is we sort of elevate the, the delivery mechanism. If, if somebody is, is good at something, we kind of ele elevate them. We put them on a pedestal. So no doubt this was beginning to happen around the town that John was ministering in too. 
people were probably like, let's go and see what he's going to say this time. I bet he's going to stomp on some toes. And John just really gives it to him. And man, his dunking form as he's baptizing is perfect. You know, he's got all the right strength in his legs. And he just, so John is on his game. Now, the great thing, everything you see from the account of John the Baptist is that none of this even entered the thought of going to his head. Could you imagine being the one basically handpicked to announce after 400 years of silence, guess what, your wait is over. And I have been tapped to share the message with you. If that's me being tapped on the shoulder, I'm like, well, I must be something special. You picked me? Of course. I mean, naturally. Just listen to me. I wish. John never let any of that even enter into the equation. And I think the reason is, in his actions that you see afterwards, is John acknowledges there is one who's coming whose shoes I'm not even worthy of unlatching or in our vernacular untying. I can't even dust off his feet. This man, who is God Almighty, is too great. So to even be the one chosen, be the one handpicked to announce his arrival is too great for me to comprehend. It never entered into the equation of John to make it about him because he knew the greatness that was coming. He knew what was around the corner. I love the fact that in our little corner of the country here, we don't necessarily have a lot of brushes with fame and and uh, political power and all these kinds of things. There are certain pockets of the country, right, where that stuff just lives and people flock there on purpose. You know, hopefully I can brush with greatness or I can advance my career or those kinds of things. And here in Maine, it's like, well, if they show up and they have a vacation home or something like that, whatever. If we see them in the grocery store, we're like, I hated your last movie. That was terrible. They were Mainers, you know. It's not that impressive to us. Maybe it is to you, but you just don't admit it. You're good at... uh, not wearing it on your sleeve. Uh, we don't run in those circles all the time with where we are. And that's probably a good thing. Because that gets kind of intoxicating as well the more that you're around it, from what I hear. Not that I would know. And every once in a while, though, if you have the opportunity to, to brush with what the, earth, what the world calls greatness, you get an instant sense of, like, I don't really know how to relate to this. I don't know how to relate to the kind of power again, earthly speaking, that this person has. Either it's in their, uh, uh, their wealth or it's in their uh, political um, prestige or something like that. If you run into those types of individuals, there's this kind of thing that's kind of, it feels like it puts you in your place. And uh, I remember I was, I was trying to grapple with some of this once. I was watching a, a game and uh, it was an NBA game. And these guys play 82 games a year. And we're all sick of hearing the contracts, right? These guys get the 10 to 20 to $30 million they get per year. And now we're seeing guys sign $300 million contracts to lock them up for the next 40 years because we know how that goes with athletes. And so these guys are getting paid, paid obscene amounts of money. And so it becomes white noise to us. We're like, oh, yeah, $10 million here. I, you know, this poor guy, he's on a bench warmer. He's only making $3 million a year and that kind of thing. And, and we don't really know how to enter into that equation for, it to, for, for us to be able to comprehend that. And so... I was listening, I was watching one guy, and he was making $20 million, $25 million a year at this point in his career. And I was like, okay, he's going to play 82 games. I want to know what the math is on that. So I got the calculator out because I needed one. And I started doing the division and everything. And it hit me. Every time this guy laces up his sneakers, he can pay off my house. Every night. And he's got 79 or 80 more games to play. And I was like, what might take me another 20 years to, to accomplish, he can do in one night. He's like, oh, I'm going to have to put in a good solid 20 minutes on this one. 
You see, if you allow yourself to try to comprehend that world, it's staggering, isn't it? And, and I know some of you are like, let me have those problems. I'll try that out. Just, for, you know, see if it fits. But it's staggering. And yet that's earthly power. That's limited. One broken leg and it's all done. One bad game or bad media outing or something like that, a bad evening with your girlfriend in the elevator, it can all go down the tubes, if you know what I'm talking about. It's fleeting power, and yet we're awestruck by it because it moves in circles that we don't know how to relate to. And yet here's John the Baptist saying, this is the king of kings coming. This is the light of men. His fame and his glory and his strength and his majesty is not fleeting. It will not die out. And so, yes, I am here every day to announce his arrival, and I'm here to scream to the top of my lungs, repeat for the kingdom of God is at hand. And how in the world could you think that this is about me? The light and the power and the magnificence that's coming is simply incomprehensible. That's who the light is. This point is underscored for us in Colossians 1, where it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. Think about the things that need to stay in place in this universe. And in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We are just finishing up our Christmas season for 2014. We have sung uh, songs that have lasted for centuries about the coming of the baby, of the infant, the Christ child. And if we stop to think about the incomprehensible light that came, that John is announcing, and we say that that light rested in that manger, and that's what we run into every time we're in the line at the grocery store or uh, you know, checking out at Walmart and everyone's stepping on each other, is that fighting just to be able to say Merry Christmas because that's going by the wayside. If we understood that there's an, an attempt and an ability to snuff out the greatness and the magnificence and the authority of Christ, we would laugh at the attempt. Now, wait, wait a second, country. You mean to tell me you're trying to say that we can't say Merry Christmas? Do you realize who you're trying to hold back? Do you understand the incomprehensible light, the King of Kings, and that this power is coming in full force? And you think if we just stop saying Merry Christmas, he's going to go away. That's pretty funny. Now, I live in, in what I think is the real world, and there are times where I kind of feel like, all right, do I say Merry Christmas and make a stink of it and everything? And I don't mean to let you guys down, but it's not always the first thing that I think of is to pick a fight and be like, I'm going to say Merry Christmas if they say Happy Holidays. I admire you guys that are ready for that fight each and every day. I'm like, just get me out of Walmart. I can't stand it anymore. But if I think about who I represent and what has come, and I think about why would I shy away from doing what I can to continue to spread that light. The baby in the manger is this same incomprehensible force. The reason why we struggle with the incomprehensible is because we can Google anything we think of. If we don't know the answer, somebody's thought of it or at least pretends to know. And if you do a search on Google, it'll come up. If you don't know how to fix something and don't I know it, uh, you pull up YouTube and some dude on there with his overalls is doing the repair under the sink and he gets to film it all and you go, oh, that's how I do it. 
Of course, my you know bolts never come off as easy as these guys do or anything. But it's there. It's there. The information is there. So in the human race, we've become accustomed to there's an answer for everything. And it's available to us. And it's a few clicks away. Uh, I remember one of the most uh, profound moments I had. Uh, I was about probably 30 years old or so. I had just come uh, to this area and just started with this church. And a friend of mine invited me to go do some ministry work with them at a family camp in western Maine. Now, I've grown up in Maine. I lived in Auburn and Lewiston, and so it's very much like, like Waterville and kind of like downtown and that sort of thing. I, I grew up in an apartment building. And so the, you know, nature and the outdoors and all those kinds of things were not something I really did that much of, and I lived in the great state of Maine. And so um, it wasn't something I really soaked in. And then after I graduated, moved to Boston, and of course you don't have a lot of wildlife and nature in Boston and stuff. It's wild there, but it's not, you know... And so um, when I came back to Maine, I was kind of looking forward to doing some of the things I missed out on. I was kind of hoping that my kids would get to experience the things that Maine provides that I never really did much of. And, uh, and so when I was invited to this camp, it was great. I got to do some, you know, boating and all that kind of stuff. I was like, wow, this is great. This is what the state is all about. And at night, after we had finished one of our, our Bible times with the family and everything, uh, a bunch of people said, yeah, we're going to go out in the field now and look up at the sky. And I was thinking, well, that's terribly exciting. You know, you're going to just go out there and, oh, you know. And so, you know, I'm going along to get along. We go and drop our stuff off, and they start marching up this path to a field. And I'm looking down at my feet the whole way. It's kind of dark. You can still see what's going on, but I'm just making sure I'm not used to weeds and stuff because I was, just came from concrete. And so, um, you know, I'm, we get out to the field, and I just see people start dropping like flies. They're laying in the grass and just looking up, soaking it all in. And so I jump in and I, you know, participate. And that's when it struck me. I was like, this is why people do this. It, it kind of like went silent, right? Because all of these folks were believers and they all had the presence of the Lord in their hearts and guiding their life. And it's like it instantly turned into worship because they saw what was hanging in the sky. And to all of us, it was like, there's no way this happened randomly. What I'm soaking in now and what the light pollution of the city can't drown out anymore is so brilliant and magnificent that it just makes you this big. And you're instantly brought into a, a presence of, of awe and wonder. Something you can't Google. Who put all those things there? You can see a lot of attempts to explain it. Even people that believe like us that study the Word are still at the end of the day saying, It's faith. How else can you explain this? It's, it's, it, this wasn't random chance. This wasn't primordial soup. This wasn't the things that just kind of evolved over billions of years. How could this just happen randomly and by accident? You see, we have lost the art of wonder and awe. To just soak in how big God really is. We live by... Uh, we have a couple of opportunities in how to live, I guess is how I'm going to say it. Those people that are willing to be led out into the field and kind of drop on their backs and soak in the majesty of God, even though it should pretty much undo your foundation and you go, okay, I don't know why I trust me anymore. If God is this big and this magnificent, he's capable of doing all this. Why do I think I know what I'm doing tomorrow? Why do I think I know what's best for everybody in my life and that kind of thing? It really reduces your own power. Because you've taken in the bigness of God. That's what I would call living by principles. I would say the person that's able to kind of step out there and look up at the sky a little timidly, even though it's going to undo their world, they say, I need to put my trust in something more trustworthy than I am. 
I fail me and the people around me all the time. So I want to hang on to something that's big enough to hang all this in the sky and keep my world together too. When you live by principles, you start putting off various temptations. You start, you start putting off various struggles because they don't really matter. Now, the person that's being led out there in the field and looking down at their feet and they say, look, you've got to look up, dude. This is going to be great. And you say, I just I can't look up yet. I'm, I'm afraid to. And somebody would go, why wouldn't you take all this in? Because of what I'm forced to face. If you get me to stare at all this and it starts sinking in that there's a great God who's powerful and he's in charge and he's in control. Guess who's not in control of my life anymore? Me. And I don't really feel like letting that go. I don't really feel like opening up my universe to that. So somebody that lives by feelings is over on this side of the camp. And, and, you know, feelings is a weird word, right? We think it's all like squishy and feminine and all that sort of stuff. I think there are so many guys that are big, burly, rough and masculine who still live by their feelings. Now, they don't have all the the tissues and the hankies and stuff at Chick Flicks all the time and stuff. But they say things like this. They go, they go, you know, I'm uh, I'm so tired of of, uh, the the uh, the old ball and chain on my on my back all the time. I I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to show up and and be a be a sacrificial leader at home. I know I'm supposed to do all this stuff, but she won't stop nagging me. So I just don't bring it up anymore. I don't deal with it anymore. She gets what she wants. I get what I want. And we just kind of go in two different paths. That big, tough, strong guy is also living by his feelings. It's the way it goes. Why? Why would you say that? Because I don't feel like engaging in that. I don't feel like hearing it anymore. And so we have to be honest with ourselves that, Lord, every time I trade in the opportunity to live by what's true and what's right and what I can honestly acknowledge is only by your hand, I am basically giving into what I feel like I need and what I feel like I can take right now. That's the difference between living by principles rather than living by feelings. Matthew 6.33 spells out a principled life for us. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. The person who's living by principle says, I know what's right to do now, trusting that what needs to be added to my life will come in his time and in his way. So it probably would be an appropriate time to pause and say, so who's in control of your life? You know what the answer should be. If I said, so who should be in control of your life? You're all right, I get it, the guy who owns the stars. I know, he's powerful, he's bigger than me. So why is it that those of us who have been doing this and have been uh, ministering in the Word of God, from Pastor Bill all the way down, we've, we keep running into conversations where folks say, you know what, at every decision point, at every juncture, I just want to please the Lord, but somehow something goes wrong and I end up kicked in the teeth or I end up letting people down and I'm just not sure. We always see this spark in somebody's eye of what they want to do and they honestly want to give things over to the Lord, at least in the moment, the best that they can control at that point in time. But something always goes wrong. And I think the trick or the secret, if you will, is really found in who we are looking to, whether or not we're, looking, we're, we're living by our principles or living by our feelings. To help us with this, let's go back to John's description about who Jesus is just a little bit. I, I took from the passage that, that, uh, that the light is incomprehensible. It's, uh, it's uncontainable. But I also see what, what John's describing here is an invincible light, something that's on the offensive, something that's not going to lose to anybody. We mentioned before that, that after God was done speaking to the prophets and before he announced the arrival of the king of kings, his only son, there's a period of 400 years of just deafening silence. 
Is God no longer with us? Does he no longer care? Where is he? And I almost get the impression, and it's it's a crude analogy. I don't mean to make it sound like God had to figure out a plan, because he certainly didn't have to. But I almost picture Jesus being on on God's side and just going, you've got to let me in. You've got to announce I'm coming, because this darkness that they're stumbling around in, that they're playing in, it it can't even hold me back. When I show up on the scene, it is done. So, Lord, just, just tell me it's time to go in the game, and I'm there. I get the the impression of this invincible, forceful, on-the-offense kind of activity that's happening because darkness is very passive if you think about it. You don't flip a switch to turn darkness on. Darkness is always there in the wings waiting for someone to just turn out a light, and I'm there. So darkness is is passive, and, and the strange thing about darkness is it really yields no power. It doesn't generate anything. The only thing it has in terms of its power is deception. You know, think about it this way. If the light comes on in the room, you know the boogeyman's not there. If the light's on in the closet, the bad guy's not there, right? But when the lights go out, the bad guy's still not there, but you don't know it. You're just wondering because that's the power of darkness is that deception. And so Jesus is sitting on the sides going, if you just let me show up, darkness doesn't have a prayer. It doesn't have any chance because it's passive. It has to yield to the power of the light. And I love that the translators use the word comprehend because it says the darkness did not comprehend the light. It could better be translated it didn't, it didn't overcome the light. It couldn't force it out and, and do battle with it. But I also like the, the, the English translation there of comprehend because what do you and I do when we can't process something in our minds? Ah, I'm done with this. I can't even think of this anymore. All right, you win, you win, fine, whatever. I just can't even, I can't even do battle with you anymore because I don't get it. And I almost picture darkness just having to just give up and relinquish its power, its so-called power, because true light illuminates everything. If I could continue to draw out another metaphor for you, I believe that it's kind of like when we're born, we've been given a house. And when we come into existence, this house has all of its furnishings. It has its light fixtures everywhere. It's got ceilings, this and that. It's got fans and all these kinds of things. However, it was never given any power. There's no light to exist in this house. And so what do our eyes do when we're standing in darkness long enough? We start to adjust a little bit. You can start to make out silhouettes and shapes and shadows and things. And ever since the day we were born, we're occupying a house that has no power. We're occupying a house that we think is sufficient because we're starting to adjust and we know no better. So what do we end up doing? We get used to the stumbling. We get used to the shin bruises every time we kick the nightstand. We get used to hearing that we probably have artwork on the walls, but we don't have any eyes to see it or no light to shine on it. So we can't appreciate it. So it's this strange kind of existence of like there's something in our reach, but we don't even know what it is because it's being masked. By the darkness. So somebody comes along and appeals to perhaps the thing that we're created with, which is wanting to find out the answer behind all these things. Who is in charge? Who, who made all these things? And they present to us the light of Jesus Christ. And they say, you know, Christ can come in to this house that you've been given that's been empty and dark and dusty and dirty and you don't even know where the filth is. And he wants to come in and he wants to shed light. He wants to bring in this incomprehensible, invincible light into your life and to expose all these things so that you can start living in this house the way it was meant to be lived in. And we go, you know, that's not a bad idea. What I think I'm going to do is when when you send him to my door and he knocks, I'm going to open the door and I'm going to bet he's going to have a flashlight on him 
And I'm going to say, hey, come in here because I've got some curiosity. This room's always troubled me. I've always wondered why I keep tripping over this. Or I heard there's a painting in my living room. I haven't been able to see it. So we think we can lead Jesus around with his flashlight saying, would you please expose the areas of my house that I want to see? And this also gives us the ability to run down the hall and say, now don't look in this room yet. Clunk, click, lock the door. I don't need any light in there. I kind of know what's in there. And it, quite frankly, Lord, I don't really want you to see what's in there either. So if you would, please just show me the things that I'm curious about. And we think that we can package Jesus into this little religious existence that is really under our control. We're kind of leading him by the nose. I think what John's spelling out is he's saying, when the light shows up, it's almost like he doesn't even come to the door at first to knock. Instead, he goes right to your service entrance, the amperage and all that kind of stuff that's supposed to be there on the side of the house. And he plugs in something so fierce and incomprehensible that all of your lights, the appliances you flip, flip the switch on, you know what it's like when power comes back on and the fan starts spinning again? You go, oh yeah, I forgot I left that on. Life comes to the house. Now, the uncomfortable part of this whole analogy is this, is that we didn't get to get ahead of Jesus and say, but don't shine a light over there. Or you don't need to expose this over there. That's okay. This is just between me and myself, and I'll, I'll figure that out in time. When the light of Jesus shows up on the scene, it's so forceful, but it's for our good. And every light in the house comes on. And now life is there, and it's available to us. If we're being honest with ourselves, we love to be able to package Jesus into something we can manage. But I don't think John's giving us the room for that in this first chapter of his gospel. True light brings growth and health. We get vitamin D in our skin from the sunlight. Our plants start to grow and rejuvenate. Life comes to our house even. Warmth and safety. This doesn't come by darkness. It's not available to us in the darkness. And so what we start to see is that this light is all of those things, but it's also invaluable. When the light comes on, the room that we've walked through and we've gotten used to just kicking the night table or trying to walk around it and everything, now we don't even think about it because we can see it. It's plain as day. Safety is brought to our existence. Security is brought to our existence because I know the boogeyman's not in the corner. I can see everything now. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why do I resist that? What is in me that wants to keep that outside the door and say, I thought you were bringing a flashlight. Do you see the insanity of how we try to package the incredible, magnificent, and powerful light of Jesus Christ? We always have two, two choices before us. We're going to come into 2015 and, and decide each and every day, who am I living for today? Am I pursuing what God wants out of principle, or am I pursuing what I like out of feelings? And the problem that we get into is if we just do what seems to come natural to us, it usually seems much easier to us. I would love for God to call me to spend more time on my couch. I'd love for him to say, eat more snacks and watch more TV. He never calls me to the things that my flesh wants to do and does very well. He calls me to things that stretch me out of my comfort zone, usually require me not to have the ability to do it, so I have to rely on his ability, all that kind of stuff. That's what the Lord does, but he always comes through. So the decision to follow him, the decision to give my life over to him initially is very tough, but my life gets easier if I just surrender in principle to what he's calling me to. It doesn't mean that my washer machine will always stay running. It doesn't mean that Aunt Matilda got me the gifts that I wanted for Christmas this year. Any of that. Things will still go wrong in my life. But if I surrender to live by principle, I'm not complicating my walk 
by piling on the sin and the choices that so easily suit me at first and then cost me in the end. Proverbs 13 says, The way of the treacherous is hard. It starts off as a very easy decision and becomes very difficult. So what I'm proposing is that we must be willing to absorb this incomprehensible, invincible, and invaluable light if we want our choices, the point of our decision, to go better. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he just needs to pray a prayer at a youth camp meeting someday, and it will last him for 40 years, and he won't even have to lift a finger. doesn't say that at all, does he? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. I have yet to meet a Christian who doesn't every day have to surrender their will to the Lord because it's not going to come naturally. It has to come supernaturally. My point of decision, what Luke 9.23 is calling me to do, needs to be better prepared, better informed by my wonder and awe of the greatness of the King of Kings. If I'm soaking this in as much as I can, if I'm making myself available to this uh, incredible light that's being offered to me, that's, that's been made available to my house and my existence, then, then why do I think I can have better control of my life? Why do I think that I can start deciding what's best for me? I will just supernaturally start giving things over to the Lord and saying, you take control. You can hang stars. I haven't done anything that cool yet. So how will you welcome the light of men next year? Where are you going to find him? All we can do in terms of like the leadership of this church or your small group leaders or your friends who are trying to disciple you, all we can do is to present to you the light, but you have to be able to say, I need that in my house. And then will you be willing to surrender to it, to let it shine in every corner and give those pieces uh, over to the Lord no matter how uncomfortable it is. He is overwhelming, but he's also warm in healing. The benefits of the light are unmistakable. So will you welcome that this coming year? That is the question before you. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Jim, if you would, please come and... Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we worship you this morning, O oh God. Each one of us heard a message today that is asking us to grow in closeness to you and to listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling us openly to do. Father, there may be somebody here, a visitor or a guest, we thank you for them here this morning. We thank you that they came to visit. Father, we lift anyone up to you this morning that does not know you as Savior. We ask that they yield their life to you. We ask, O oh God, that they cry out to you and that the Holy Spirit right now is calling them by name. Father, as we look forward to the new year coming, Help us, O oh God, as a church to grow closer together. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.